Bonjour, s'il vous plaît, silence. Silence total. Arrête de lire le Figaro. Good morning. Um, I was here yesterday in this lovely little tent. Uh, and here I am again, and very pleased to uh, be with Martin Amis. Uh, I just want to introduce Martin a bit uh, to a French audience. He is, of course, the author of numerous novels, collections of shorter fiction, and non-fiction works. Uh, but I think it's difficult, perhaps, from... Uh, this side of the Manche to appreciate what quite what a uh, significant figure Martin is in terms of uh, British society, if we can speak of British society in this day and age. Um, perhaps an anecdote uh, from my own youth. For people of my generation, Martin is not simply a writer, he is the writer, probably the most important uh, writer since the 1960s uh, in the English language and, and he more than that is something very unusual I think in, in British society which he has become a kind of synosia or, or a focus uh, for certain kinds of concerns and preoccupations uh, that the society has. And that's very unusual for Martin and I. We're just discussing this. Uh, there is very little reverence for the writer in British society. The writer is accorded no respect. But that is not the case when it comes to Martin. And oh, yes, it is. Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it may be, there may be as many kicks as pricks, but, uh, <laughs> but the fact remains that there cannot be uh, a matter of public policy in Britain nowadays without Martin being consulted <laughs> in, in some way or other, uh, whether it's a, a smoking ban or a, a, a new war, uh, his opinion will be eagerly sought. Uh, so it's a, a pleasure to have him here today. I, I believe that his uh, latest book to be published in France is, is The Second Plane, which is a collection uh, of essays together with a couple of uh, short stories that uh, all, all things that Martin has written since uh, the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center of uh, the 11th of September 2001. So it seemed particularly apt that he should be here to discuss uh, some of the questions associated with literature and politics. And, and I really wanted to ask you first, Martin, because you know, having been one of your readers for many years, I definitely noticed a point at which you started to take a more active concern as a writer, both in fiction and non-fiction, uh, in the political realm, and, and what I wanted to ask you was, how was it for you? Why did this come about? Uh, good morning. Thank you all for coming. I'd just like to return the compliment um, to Will. Um, only twice in my life have I, on the basis of a first book, said that this is a major talent, uh, in the, you know, a nascent major talent. Uh, the other time was for David Simon, who gave us The Wire and Homicide, um, etc. 
and has turned into one of the great popular artists of the last decade. Uh, the other time was for Will. Um, on the basis of his first book, uh, The Quantity Theory of Insanity, I've since revised what I would say, but I... Uh, well, I fine-tuned it in that um, I would say that if, if J.G. Ballard and Jorge Luis Borges had met and fallen in love, then Will would have been the son they had. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. You've now, you know, I'm cursed by a very visual imagination, so <laughs> I'm now going to spend the rest of this session imagining the feeble gropings of the blind but great Argentinian writer towards a cowering Jim Ballard. <laughs> no, I think they would both have been very caring and attentive lovers. Um, much poetry was there at your creation. You asked, did you not, about uh, pol pol political evolution. Um, I was tremendously apolitical when I was young, and um, proud of it, uh, in a sort of moronic way. Um, my two colleagues at the New Statesman, the left-wing magazine I worked for, I was on the literary end, but on the front end were Christopher Hitchens and James Fenton, the poet, and they were uh, communists, they were Trotskyites, Trotskyists. Uh, Hitchens says, don't call me a Trotskyite. He said, only Stalinites would call me Trotskyite. <laughs> Uh, it has to be Trotskyist. Um, but there they were, and they would come in and try and enlist me to sell the socialist workers um, uh, daily, weekly, on, on sodden high streets early on Saturday morning. And I would always say, no, I, don't want to, I didn't want to be a part of any co communality. I didn't even want to be part of a trade union. Um, I was very committed to the idea of not being part of a group. Ne nevertheless, I mean, I don't want to cut across you through perhaps one of your signature works, Money, which was written in the early 1980s, came to be viewed uh, in the English-speaking world as perhaps the most searing indictment of the coming free market politics, kind of Reaganite thinking, and the kind of, as its title suggests, the kind of unalloyed lust for money. Uh, recently quite a good television adaptation was screened in the UK, uh, which was perceived, I think, as part of a, a re-evaluation and an acceptance of the prescience of your vision in that way. So was that not a kind of ineluctable tendency towards the political, that kind of critique? Well, I, I, I since came to believe that you, you can't avoid the political. Um, it's part of the air you breathe. You know, what's that conceit about you live inside the whale and politics is the ocean, but you're inside the whale. And as Salman Rushdie said, among others, there is no whale. Um, you, you are in the sea of politics. But um, when I wrote the novel Money, I had no idea that that's what I was doing. I didn't think, I'm, I'm going to write a novel that will um, sum up the lust for, for lucre of the 1980s, and I, I felt I was writing about something universal, and it just sort of turned out that it became a sort of representative book. And then there were books such as Time's Arrow that it inevitably uh, took a political dimension almost against their own will. I mean, in trying to 
discuss the Holocaust in, in, in perhaps the only way that you felt was possible, which was to, in a way, reverse the level of causation. Uh, you came into contact with the political there, but I think that by the time of the early 90s, uh, I remember, and this may have been, a, this is a deliciously offhand comment I think you made. You said, we are all Labour now in, in the dying days of the John Major administration when the 13-year-long or uh, Tory regime was seen as uh, rotten, vermiculated from within. But, but you said, we are all Labour now in, in a rather weary way, I felt. Um, well, I, I must say it's a, it's a tremendous effort to get interested in British politics. Um, every, every atom of your being has to concentrate on working up an interest in that. Um, but I, I thought it was just a truth that, that um, for a generation or two, all, all intellectuals have been of the left. Now, it's, it's also true that I wrote a novel about the Holocaust, and, and I wrote a collection of short stories about nuclear weapons. The work things that did excite me, um, that gave me, you know, you, you can't write a novel without, or even a story with, without what Nabokov calls a throb. Um, Nabokov says the first throb of Lolita went through him when he saw a drawing by, the first drawing ever done by a monkey. And all the, all the drawings showed were the bars of, of the poor creature's cage, he said. Um, and you, you may well wonder how that turned into Lolita. <laughs> but it is often at, at a, you know, a, a very surprising angle that these things get going. But um, it was in the early 90s, which we can now see as a great holiday from politics, um, because the Soviet Union had collapsed and September the 11th had yet to happen. And if you remember, it was a decade in which um, we had so much time on our hands politically that we devoted an entire year to Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> uh, and then another entire year to O.J. Simpson. That's how little was going on. Um, but during that time, I, I wrote a, a sort of amateur biography of Stalin. And I now think I was giving myself a political education. And when September the 11th happened, there were certain things I could recognize. Um, you know, and, until 1989, or 1991, the, the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Soviet Union, um, there were these two great forces seemingly eternally opposed. And, um, and I felt that again, that we, after September, on September the 12th, I, I thought the world is again bipolar. We, we are confronted with an irrationalist, and here's a good word, agonistic enemy. Agonism means eternally opposed, unappeasably opposed. Nothing you could do would alter the hostility that is being directed at you. But it seems to me that, that uh, if, 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 as you say, the throb uh, comes essentially for you from grand and geopolitical events rather than from, you know, as you say, it would be an incredible effort to get interested in British politics. So your political interface is with the movement of the world spirit, as it were. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's why um, British politics uh, doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter in the world. And it's therefore reduced to personalities and um, gossip. And the differences in, in policies are negligible. Um, there are no great you know, issues. There's nothing that, that heats the blood about British politics. Um, no, my, my interest is in, um, is in what power does. And I think you know, the trouble with England is, Will and I disagree about this. He, th he thinks that countries are not like people. Um, I think they are, and I think people are like countries, too. Um, I've known many a failed state. Um, and, and in fact, most of us are, are um, more or less parliamentary democracies with some, some grave constitutional flaws. Um, I only ever want, knew one regional superpower, and that was Saul Bellow. Um, but, um, but countries are like people, too, and not very nice people. Um, very touchy, vain, power-hungry, um, obsessed by face and appearances. Uh, I th I've always thought it was a tremendous anomaly in his historiography, at least in, in British, in Anglophone historiography, that countries used to be referred to as she. Um, France knew that this was not in her interest, you know, to... Uh, no, if, you, if you just change it to his interests, if you start thinking of countries as men, then it all makes sense. Um, the, the, the aggression, the, the again, sort of unappeasable nature of, of um, state leaders is, is definingly masculine. Yes, I, I think what struck me, perhaps, about your book about Stalin, Cobra the Dread, and then your later uh, book, The House of Meetings, and the way in which you have come in on the international political terrain uh, was, as you say, a concern with the extreme exercise of power. But I think you say, I mean, this is to come in another angle, I think you say somewhere in uh, the second plane that if people questioned your ability to comment on the realm of international politics, they didn't question your ability or your interest as a writer in masculinity. Uh, and and that, that you viewed the international terrain as an extension of kind of masculinist hegemonic contest by other means. And it, it seemed to me that your writing on Stalin in particular was a kind of wake-up call to what you viewed as the complacent and complacent British left who had for too long provided succor as psychic fellow travellers to the Stalinist terror. Uh, and that in a way this goes on into your, perhaps into your critique uh, in the post-September 11 world uh, of the way in which uh, liberals have responded. Do you think that's fair? I do. I think... Um Again, it's it's a sort it's a, it's a huge topic um, the the appeasement of the Soviet Union, and it, um, everyone thinks it's just intellectuals who did it because intellectuals are stupid enough to believe anything, as Orwell said. But in fact, it was it was academics, it was businessmen, it was it was um, it's a, a vast subject. But to, if I can just develop the the masculinity idea. Um, my quarrel with Islam, I've now narrowed down entirely to questions of feminism. 
Um, and I don't think... Find me someone on the left who, who approves of um, genital mutilation of nine-year-old, nine-year-old brides marrying not nine-year-old boys but old men of uh, polygamy, a, um, a deeply undemocratic notion uh, of honor killing. No one, no one approves of these. They, they, they'll defend um, you know, any act of uh, anti-Americanism, but they won't defend any of that. And to go further, you know, there, there have been about, I think, 38, 39 women head of states. Um, and we all know that the first challenge a woman head of state faces is proving to everyone that she's just like a man. We see this in Golda Meir, in you know, Hillary Clinton, who didn't, in fact, get there that time. We certainly saw it in Margaret Thatcher, who uh, uh, everyone said was just like a man. Mitterrand said she had the, the mouth of Marilyn Monroe and the eyes of Caligula. Um, <laughs> and Ray- Reagan, who loved her, said, um, she's one of my favorite dot, dot, dot people. Um, <laughs> And everyone at, at these G8 meetings always expected her to march into the wrong toilet. Um, I'm now a, a millenarian feminist in, in that I believe what we have to evolve towards with some urgency, although it will take at least a century, is, is women head, heads of state who bring feminine qualities to bear on governance. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the, the trouble with feminism as I see it now is that it's stalled on this idea that, that pole, pole dancing is empowering. <laughs> um, it empowers women. Um, that, and every 70-year-old pole dancer you know will agree with that. Um, what, what feminism has to do is, is not think that it's emerging from, as it were, Victorian values into equality. It, it has to go back much further than that. Patriarchy, patriarchy has been in place for five million years. This is the point at which men and women separated from the apes. Um, now, the idea that you can rise above that and really change things in a generation or two generations, is an illusion. You've got to feel the weight of the past. But we have to be able to envisage a future where women... There there are very few differences scientific... Science has shown us between the female brain and the male brain. There are massive differences in acculturation. And we all know that women are kinder, gentler, and, and less close to violence than men. And this... I believe has to be reflected on the national scale, the international scale, the global scale. Um, In one way, I'd like to take up uh, the suppressed syllogism uh, implicit in your remarks about female circumcision and infibulation in relation to the left, uh, generally speaking, and its uh, attitude towards... Uh, the Islamic world, but in another way, I really don't want to get bogged down in that terrain. But I think it's there nonetheless. It seems to me a very, very strong marker to put out and say, well, nobody uh, is in favor of these things. QED. QED what exactly? 
I mean, many, many people, of course, in the Islamic world are utterly opposed to these things and see them. I think you say somewhere in the second plane that you are not an Islamophobe. You are uh, an Islam Isla Islamismophobe uh, and, and draw uh, fine distinction. But as I say, and I'm not going to even give you the opportunity to come back on this, I'm just going <laughs> to steamroller you on because... I, but what, what strikes me as more interesting is that, and I think perhaps for a French audience, is that, of course, in Britain, Martin has for many years been regarded as a very macho writer, you know, a, a writer preoccupied by uh, sport, by uh, masculinity, by sexual attraction. And I wondered, and this is perhaps a little unfair and ad hominem, whether the two phases of your career, the kind of earlier tough guy career... Uh, and the later new feminist millenarian period in your career in some way perhaps coincide with having been the father first of boys, and we all know how brutal that can be, and then the father of girls, whether that's something to do with it. Um, um, I think that's a bit reductive. <laughs> I, uh, you know, writers' lives are of interest, but then they have no authority over what you actually go ahead and write. Um, I think I, I, I look back at my first two or three novels, and I think I sometimes think, "Ooh, um, that's a bit rough. That's a bit, uh, uh, you know, macho or or just unimaginative when it comes to women." But around about money is a feminist book, and um, in fact, they've. They've all had that uh, thing, that agenda behind them in as much as you can have that. I mean, being interested in masculinity um, is another way of being interested in, in, in the feminine. Um, and I've always... People, people used to say to me, you know, you're a misogynist. By the way, don't use that word. Don't use racist or misogynist. It's a conversation stopper, and it's, it's the end of, of discourse, and it means people start thinking with the blood, and it's all over. It's a sort of golden hand grenade you throw at your opponent, and, um, you know, and of course you can't be too vigilant, can you, about racism or misogyny, so it, there's always an excuse for it, but it's cheap. Um, I've, of course, never been that. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I think the difference is that I've, I've now been getting more interested in writing more inwardly about women. But, um, but there's never been... You know, the misogyny does exist, and we all recognise it halfway across a room. It's, um, it's a particular pathology that, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think any kind of artist could, could rise above it and ever produce anything. It's, it's too crippling. Um, and I... It feels like a sort of very natural prog progression for me to 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 come to see women as as sort of uh, redemptive figures. When I I think back over your oeuvre, and uh, there's one thing that that has stuck with me over many years. And I don't think I've ever spoken with you about it before. But in your novel, The Information, which is ostensibly about two novelists, one extremely unsuccessful. Uh, and profound, I think, loosely, or if not tries, to be. tries to be profound, and, and one kind of 
uh, almost tirelessly glib and, and rather successful. There, you, you have this conceit of, a, uh, of an enormous prize, a kind, of, uh, a, a kind of genius award in the literary realm, which is called the Profundity Requital. Uh, in the novel, uh, and this always, it 's always struck me in in relation to your oeuvre this this idea buried with me that in some sense you may be in search not at, of course at a financial level but at, at a aesthetic a philosophic level uh, at, at a literary level, you may be in search of of your own profundity requital uh, hence uh, the aim the, the aim being so high. Uh, and the declivities uh, and antinomies that you're concerned with being so totalizing. Uh, Stalin, Hitler, uh, rational democracy, uh, Islamism, uh, Western values, the Western canon, uh, feminism, masculine violence. These are very, very clear-cut. Well, ambition, I mean... It's true that the, the writer's life is all anxiety and ambition. Um, you have to... There's a pleasant feeling you get sometimes when you're beginning a novel where you say to yourself, this is impossible. And I bet you had that with the book of Dave. Um, and nonetheless, you somehow bring it off. And that's... Um, you, you feel you're taking on something that's about the right size. Um, I recently abandoned a huge autobiographical book where I, I hoped to write um, history of the sexual revolution up to the present day autobiographically. Um, uh, you wouldn't believe how long I went on trying to do this. Uh, and, and the novel was completely dead. Uh, it's a funny thing that when you use life in a novel, life turns out to have this quality that it's dead. Um, you know, what, what gives life to a novel is, is not verisimilitude, but all the contrivances and um, devices and stylizations you bring to it. Um, also, writing autobiographically about sex is disgusting. Um, you know, towards morning I took her again. Um, she fainted for the second time. Um, <laughs> Uh, in fact, I don't know if you agree, Will, but writing about sex is sort of a dead end. Um, and I don't think any writer has ever got very far with it. Um, you know, I was reading John Updike, Roger's version again, which has a lot of sex. And you know how Updike writes. Um, he, well, he writes like that about sex, too. He sends in a little Japanese camera crew <laughs> into the bedroom and into the bathroom. Um, and I was reading these, you know, peeled eyeball descriptions of then he took, took his and she gave him his, you know. And um, I just thought, where is this getting us? And D.H. Lawrence made, who's the hinge figure in the British novel, uh, he, he is the great, grow, makes the, the British novel grow up. But he, his thrashing around with sex is completely fruitless. But I, I found out something in the novel I've just written, The Pregnant Widow, there is one sex scene that lasts for about three pages. And I found it very easy to write. And I realized 
why is in that um, he, it's pornographic sex, although it's taking place in 1970, which is sort of pre-pornographic. For various structural reasons, I can't reveal more than that, but, it, but, it, but it's pornographic sex, and it's easy to write about um, because all emotion has been drained from it. It's cynical. It's recreational. Um, you know, what's wrong with, with sex as a subject is that it's de-universalizing. If, heaven forbid, you should watch any pornography on the internet, you'll find yourself saying, no, don't do that. You know, oh, or don't take that off yet. Um, and, um, and what you realize is that um, it's, it's all quirks and quiddities and that the universal, which is what fiction concerns itself with, is completely lost. But that told me something about pornography, too, that um, it's said in the 17th century poets lost, lost the ability to think and feel at the same time, that uh, fe feeling and thought were no longer one thing, they were two things. But now in our age, um, sex and, and, and emotion have also been separated. And so you know, one advantage of this is that you can write about it. Um, I commend Martin <clears throat> for his nimble footwork in shifting uh, my question about profundity uh, towards the more uh, pleasing subject of pornography. Uh, a few letters here or there, what does it matter? Uh, and I would like to pursue... Uh, this discussion at great length. However, we are running short of time, and uh, it might be nice to give you, the audience, an opportunity possibly to ask uh, a few questions. One thing I would say, though, please, uh, is a question, not a statement. If you feel a statement welling up in you, <laughs> go home and... Uh, do it in your room. And, and do it quietly by yourself in a, in a room. <laughs> But if you, if, you, if you have any questions for, for Martin, please feel free to stick up a hand. There's a microphone. Yes, uh, uh, lady um, there. Well, I will make a statement. I, uh, I, no, you won't. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. I won't. It was about people and places. Um, Wales is very beautiful, but the Welsh suffer from a lack of ambition and um, perhaps apathy. Uh, writing. Um, what could or should writers now write in order to save us from this moronic inferno... Um, well, I'm, I'm going to answer Will's question about profundity in, the, <laughs> in that you, you can't try to be profound um, any more than you can try to be controversial. Um, you know, either you are or you aren't. I think, I think um, <coughs> there's been... That I, I'm only talking with confidence about... Um, the English novel, the American novel, and to, to an extent, the Russian novel. But all, all the good writers have been funny. Um, and there's a good reason for that. And it's that life, whatever else it is, and we all know how you know, terrifying and atrocious it can be, is funny. It's just the, the, the nature of the animal. Um, then, after the horrors of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, there was this idea 
um, I think Beckett probably started it, that, um, that you know, and Adorno said, no more poetry after Auschwitz. Of course there's poetry after Auschwitz. There's Paul Ceylon. Um, immediately after Auschwitz, during Auschwitz. Uh, <coughs> the, the, the proposition that human beings are worthless is, is of no interest artistically. But there, there, there grew a school of writing um, that is now taken, still taken seriously, where the, the pleasure principle in writing, which is, to me, supreme, has been abandoned to such an extent that um, you have these novels that give no pleasure whatsoever, and they're usually written in flat, leaden clichés, um, and they're the ones that win the majority of the literary prizes. Because the, the judges think, well, hang on, this isn't funny, it isn't enjoyable, it isn't gripping, um, so it must be very serious. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll quote two sentences, or actually you'll quote two sentences from um, a, a, a novel that won a great many prizes. I, I'm not going to mention names, but, uh, but you, you'll perhaps, um, the style is so distinctive that you'll... These are two consecutive sentences. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he's been watched closely by a woman and he said she was watching me like a hawk oh. um, <laughs> in the next sentence he said in a voice loud enough to wait yep you got it um, that says something worrying about you Jeremy <laughs> well we all know these phrases but the, the, the idea that you're getting anything from a novelist who's capable of writing like that um, but in fact what you get is, is, a, is a, an avalanche of literary prizes um, <laughs> all you can do is obey, obey the throb um, write the novels that are given to you to write um, profundity uh, ambition all that co controversy uh, these are corollaries. Um, you can't set out to achieve them. It's like the pursuit of happiness. You can only find it by pursuing something else. Well, there we are. Have we time, time person, for one more question? One more question. I want to thank you, first of all, for um, this lovely talk. Uh, the topic of the talk was fiction in a post-9-11 world, and I just wanted to ask you to make a brief comment um, with a little time remaining on both the fiction that's come out since 9-11. The last book I read was um, by H.M. Nuckfee's um, uh, Homeboy, and also on the post-9-11 world, um, you know, you, you said it, you made a, a brief comment on it, but I, I wondered if you could just speak a little bit more. Do you feel that it's um, as? Uh, do you think 9/11 impacted the world as strongly as, say, what happened in 1968? People say it changed self and society. People were no longer care about society and cared about the project of me, not the project of making of society. So, what do you think? Well, um, let's not exaggerate the, the changes that have happened in the world. We all feel it's very different, but um, in fact, death, death through terrorism in the West is a, about the same rate as, as the rate of Americans who drown in the bath. Um, it's not numerically tremendously significant, but something, I think, did change in our consciousness. Um, Norman Mailer said at the time that... Uh, he wanted to start writing a novel 
about September the 11th on September the 12th. Um, whereas I think most of us just felt silenced for a, a good while by that event, by the size, the weight of that event. But um, um, Mailer, who, who really does understand the creative process, wrote a marvelous book called the, Spook, the Spooky Art about fiction, knew, as we all know, that um, these events, an event of that size takes, or, or any, anything you experience takes two or three years. This is how it works, to go from your front, frontal lobe, your rational mind, then it has to make its journey all the way down your spine and mingle with your subconscious thoughts, um, the thoughts you have in dreams, um, where, where energy comes from in, in writing. And dead on time, at about 2000, in about 2004 or five, there were three or four um, novels about September the 11th, um, Don Delillo, Jay McInerney, and Claire Messoud and others. Um, but I think perhaps it's an event that um, will take longer than that, um, that uh, only with a historical perspective on it could I, for one, take it on. Um, so perhaps the three-year period would have to be extended to something more like 30 years. But um, otherwise, you know, we make our responses to that, but... Um, you know, I think once you're over a certain age as a novelist, that your your evolu evolution is already established, and it is, is not swayed by by. I mean, Nabokov used to say, you know, don't write about current events because um, within a, within a few months they'll look like bloated topicalities. Uh, I don't think this is true of September the 11th, but um, there is no obligation on the writer to to address these things, whatever. It's only when you feel a genuine authorial urge. Um, and and by, certainly by my age, that's, I feel that that's already locked in. Okay. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Nietzsche's maxim, to get up in the morning in the fullness of youth and open a book. That's what I call vicious. Uh, so how much more vicious must it be to come and, and listen to writers on a beautiful morning like this? So I thank you for that. If you take anything away from this session, uh, given uh, Martin's ability to attract controversy, uh, those of you who have been taking notes will certainly have written down, Martin Amis declares war on American bathing. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I hope that the controversy will soon engulf us all. Uh, <laughs> Martin uh, will be here for a while to sign books. I'm happy to sign books as well, although not his. Uh, and uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. 
All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.